Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. Reading Mark 1, 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's good to be with you all again. Um, we'll get to explaining the oranges in a minute. Don't worry. So uh, if you need an orange, uh, maybe put, Mark, you want to grab some more oranges? Yeah. Does anybody need an orange? Everybody needs an orange today. Just do it. Just get with it. Do we just throw them out? I'm not giving you mine. I need my orange. And Dan, that's Dan's orange. You got to get your own orange, man. All right. If you need an orange, Mark's going to be walking around. Put your hand up. You're going to need an orange in a minute. All right. So (laughs) welcome to our weird church if you're new here. Uh, All right. So last week we began going through the gospel of Mark. And uh, we opened with the scene of John the baptizer coming on the scene, calling people to repentance. Today we see all three members of the Trinity present at the baptism of Jesus. And so we're going to be looking into the questions of why was Jesus baptized? What does it signify? And what does the scene of Jesus's baptism have to do with my everyday life here in Seattle? Believe it or not, it has a lot to do with your everyday life. Okay, so let's begin. Let's answer the question. Why was Jesus baptized? What does it mean? What does it have to do with my life? If you remember, John the baptizer has come onto the scene. He begins announcing Jesus is coming, prepare the way of the Lord, and he begins to proclaim a baptism of repentance, meaning he's calling people to confess their sin and to place their faith in Jesus. And so you go, well, what's the big deal with repentance being part of the whole story of the Bible? And a short answer is this, because from Genesis through Revelation, repentance shows up again and again. Why is repentance important? It is because God is not indifferent to his world. Because sin has broken into the world, it's created chaos, death, destruction, and the rest. All the things that are wrong with the world are the result of human rebellion and ultimately sin against God. And so because God is not indifferent, because we don't believe in deism, but rather God is involved and imminent in his world, he calls his people to change. So... That's how the book begins. If you look at the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, you'll notice uh, they do a little bit of different way to open the book. They give you Jesus's genealogy with all the names we can't pronounce. And then uh, they tell you about the virgin birth. Mark doesn't do that. Mark just opens John the baptizer. And in those days, Jesus was baptized. He skips all of Jesus's family background, skips the virgin birth, and gets right to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry as an adult. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
So the in those days part is in connection to what the passage that comes before. In the days in which the people were agreeing with God, repenting of their sins, and being baptized. It was in those days when it was clear that the people were waking up to God's word and God's will that Jesus arrived on the scene. What is Mark trying to communicate right here? Jesus is present when people are going from death to life. When people are beginning to change, Jesus is present among those who are repenting and looking for a new start. It's in those days. If you're looking for a new start, Jesus is among you now. Jesus arrives, and Mark tells us about his, this, this detail about his hometown. He comes from Nazareth. Now, this is what should sound a little weird based on the first eight verses. Jesus is the Son of God, the one Isaiah prophesied about, the one whom John the baptizer is completely unworthy to even untie his sandals. This one, who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit, comes from Nazareth, <laughs> which would be kind of a letdown. This person, remember, in an honor-shame culture, this reference to Nazareth was hardly a sign of power, prestige, wealth, and glory. The Son of God, the mighty Son of God, who will baptize in the Holy Spirit, does not come from Rome. He does not come from Alexandria. He doesn't come from Carthage, these major cities in the first century. He didn't come from somewhere like today where we would think of Tokyo, Madrid, Shanghai, or D.C. In fact, he didn't even come from Jerusalem. In fact, his hometown was so insignificant that it's not even mentioned in the entire Old Testament. And I, well, how small could it be? Well, remember, Bethlehem is running about 50 people. And, they, and Bethlehem made the cut. <laughs> so when you say he's from Nazareth, like literally nobody's heard of it. So they don't even mention it in the entire Old Testament. Jesus comes from Nazareth. And why is that important for Mark's readers? Remember, they are a Christian community gathered in Rome where Christians are looked down upon and despised as being morally intellectually and socially inferior in every way they worship a man who's from a no-name town who supposedly resurrected from the shameful torture and disgrace of roman crucifixion and so for the early christians who were told you are a lesser than in society Mark's reminder is that your kingly, triumphant, resurrected Son of God, the Lord Jesus, knows exactly what it's like to be despised by people of power and influence. That's what they would hear when they hear Nazareth, especially in an honor-shame culture. So can you remember a time when you felt despised? just because of where you were born, just because of where you're from, Jesus can relate to you. 
And it says this, and Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan, which makes us start asking questions immediately. Those people are all out there identifying and confessing their sin. Why is Jesus getting in the water with sinners confessing sins? Was Jesus a sinner? I thought he was sinless. Isn't baptized, baptism for sinners? And the answer is yes, but not in the case of Jesus. <laughs> You see, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus was completely flawless, completely sinless in every way. In John 8, 46, Jesus stood before a whole crowd and says, quote, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And they all walk off. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> like, Alex, we know you, dude. Um, Pilate, at his judgment, what did he say to the crowd? I find no guilt. In this man, in Hebrews chapter 4, we're told, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. So why is Jesus being baptized if he's not a sinner? John the baptizer even asked that question. Remember, have you read the other gospel accounts of the baptism? In Matthew chapter 3, the same account is recorded, but Mark doesn't include this detail. So you have to kind of, <laughs> to answer the question, you have to leave Mark and go ask Matthew or Luke. Here's what happens in Matthew's account. Jesus arrives to be baptized and says in Mark, uh, Matthew 3, but John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. <laughs> and do you come to me? And Jesus said, let it be so now. It is proper for us to fulfill, it is proper for us to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Okay, so John was concerned, and in a good, for good reason. Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I need to be baptized by you. I'm not even worthy to untie your shoes. You want to be baptized by me? And he was right for asking that question, certainly. But notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't go, well, all right, let me confess my sins too. He doesn't confess his sins because he doesn't have any. He says, no, John, it's proper for us to fulfill this, to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. What's that mean? What he's saying here is that his baptism serves to validate all that John had been saying up to that very point about him being the anointed son of God. My public baptism is to validate everything that you've been saying about me being the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's one point about it. There's also something important here too. And we're reading, in a moment we'll see where the father says, this is my son. This is important language in the Old Testament. Uh, if you take notes, read it later. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a very important passage on the sonship. Um, but Exodus chapter 4, remember the Passover and the blood of the lamb over the, the doorposts and God is liberating his people. There's a really interesting way that God begins to speak to his people. In Exodus 4, Moses is standing before Pharaoh and he says, let my people go so that my son may serve me. God begins to speak to his people as his son, the community. 
But there's a problem. The people don't serve him. (laughs) They experience a kind of liberation from Egypt, and certainly they belong to him, but they fail as obedient sons. But when Jesus comes on the scene, what's the very first thing he does? I'm here to fulfill all righteousness, i.e., I'm here to obey my Father. So that speaks to us. I'm here to obey my Father. That's how he begins. With the obedient son. And what's so important here is that when Jesus is in the water with all the sinners confessing their sin. We see Jesus identifying with those who are squaring with God. Why? Because his identification with the people is what's going to serve as the scaffolding for him to represent them at his crucifixion. I know I said a lot right there. Just deal with it. Sorry. (laughs) When Jesus identifies, the point of this is so important. Jesus identifies so that he can represent. He identifies with you so that he can stand as a substitute for you. He identifies with you. There's no other religion in the world that has the deity or deities identifying with brokenness. So he identifies with, so he can represent before. That's so big. Okay. So Jesus is the true son who, rather than rebelling, shows up with the purpose of obediently accomplishing all that he and the father had planned to accomplish. Okay. Next verse. And when he came up out of the water... Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. So Jesus comes up out of the water, looks up into the heavens, and sees them being torn open. And Mark's gospel is the only account that actually says that the heavens were torn. And that's not because he didn't have another word. That's a very specific word that he's using right here. It goes back to what Isaiah, in Isaiah 64, his prayer, listen to what Isaiah prayed would happen. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would tear the heavens and come down, and that the mountains would shake and quake in your presence. So Jesus sees the heavens being torn, And if you mark your Bible, mark that word. It's an important one. The next thing he sees is the spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, this is not the father adopting Jesus into the family. Early heresies were rejected. One was adoptionism proposed by the Ebionites that essentially said at this point, Jesus was adopted into the family of God. He'd been very good. He had followed the law up to this point. And now this is the moment that God invites him into the family. That's not it at all. Rather, the identity of the Son of God was secure from before the foundation of the world. And so we have to also make sure that we don't read 
too much into the sim- this, this metaphor, maybe, of the, of the Holy Spirit as a dove. It says, like a dove. And this is important. It even says it's descending literally into Jesus. Mark is trying to communicate that Jesus is not going to just live a private, mystical experience of escapism with God. He is publicly identifying as the Son of God, looking into the heavens, and the Spirit of God descends into his life in a unique way, in a public way. And so the Spirit had come to indwell and propel Jesus into the ministry. And so from this moment forward, you need to mark all of Jesus' ministry as something being driven and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Okay. But what about the dove? I mean, that's kind of a picture. (laughs) And while we can't go into everything about it, there is something worth noting about a dove at the beginning of the Bible in two places. And you probably already know that. Remember? At creation, it says the Spirit of God hovered over the waters like a dove, like a, like a hen essentially broods over her chickens. <laughs> a hovering. Why? Because this hovering is going to bring everything out of nothing. There's chaos and darkness, and then all of a sudden, something is about to be created. The other scene of a dove is when Noah sends out the dove from the ark, remember? And the dove plucks the olive branch, comes back, and ah, new start. We get to start over again. So the spirit descends in the form of a dove into the life of Jesus. So at the baptism, the people who are there who are looking for order to come out of chaos and looking for a new start in the middle of their life this scene is pregnant with possibility. Okay, you with me so far? Now, it's kind of a lot of theology, but you are at church. So, okay. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And here we have this booming voice with all three members of the Trinity present. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. The Father says this twice in the ministry of Jesus. Once here, once at his transfiguration. And I'm convinced that this is the most important sentence in the Bible. And the reason why I say that is because it's here, at this moment, that the Father speaks openly and directly and publicly to the Son and confirms his love for him. Why is this important? Because Jesus is about to embark on a journey that will inevitably determine the fate of every human being and the destiny, ultimately, of the entire cosmos, all of creation. It starts here. Jesus will be required to live perfectly and obediently before God and men. From this point on, Jesus will fulfill every single command of the entire Old Testament. From this point on, Jesus must not budge or give in to a single temptation. 
The standard will be perfection. And the words, you are my beloved son, are spoken before he gets to work, not after the flawless life, substitutionary death, and resurrection from the dead. Do you hear that? That God did not wait until the job was finished in order to then say, you are now my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. In fact, if that were the case, then the father should have held his tongue until after Jesus cries, it is finished, and hung his head and died. And then the father tear the heavens open and say, and that's my son. But that's every other religion in the world. Do great. Be flawless. Obey perfectly. And that's how you become a child of God. But not in the good news of the gospel. The good news and the verdict is already given before the behavior is accomplished. You're my beloved. With you, I'm well pleased. And it is these words that Jesus returned to every day of his life. And in being the beloved of God is what enabled Jesus to fulfill his mission in a world that opposed him at every single turn. When Jesus' family questioned him and called him crazy, schizophrenic in Mark chapter 3, Jesus stayed in the love of the Father. When his disciples failed him, Jesus remained in the love of the Father. When the religious authorities persecuted him, he stayed rooted in the love of the Father. When the crowds misunderstood him, Jesus stayed in the love of the Father. When the disciples disowned him, he stayed in the love of the Father. When Pilate withstood him, Jesus remained in the love of the Father. You see? When Judas betrayed him, when the Romans crucified him, when Jesus breathed his last breath over those who had just pierced him, he remained in the love of the Father, saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. It was the love of the Father that served as the holy ground for all of Jesus' life. This sentence is the foundation of everything, whether you know it or not. And why is it important for God to delight in Jesus like this? <laughs> Man, of course he does. He's perfect. But what if I told you God chose to delight in you like this? Of course, we have all the objections in the world of going, well, I haven't obeyed us. I can't even remember half the commandments in Numbers. In fact, I can't remember most of them. But remember what we said a moment ago? Is that Jesus in his humanity is able to identify with you and yet, because he's also the son of God, according to chapter 1, verse 1, he's able to represent you as your substitute and your advocate. That when Jesus was baptized, not just in water by John, but baptized in the fire of his own death. He did not go to the cross because he was a sinner. He went to the cross because you were a sinner. Because I was a sinner. Because the world was sinful. 
And as Jesus went to the cross sinless, he went there as the Lamb of God. That's why Paul writes later, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Remember that word torn a minute ago? At the end of Mark's gospel, when Jesus dies and breathes his last, it says, and the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. The first time you see the word torn, God opens and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The next time you see the word torn, it says, I'm moving out to bring more children into my family because my son is the perfect substitute to take away all their sin and make them righteous. So you can see Jesus as your substitute, both in both the life lived that he did and he endured the death that was inevitable for all of us. This is what propels Paul to say things like, so he was raised for our justification, meaning that we're now the beneficiaries of Christ's life. That God doesn't merely wink at you or think nice thoughts about you from a distance, but we become the children of God, the very righteousness of God. This is why in the hymn we sing, what should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. How do I have everything that was coming to Jesus that he deserves? And everything that I deserved went to him. Well, that's why we sing Amazing Grace <laughs> a whole lot. And we sing it, not just staring at the lights and staring off. We say it from our heart, from our guts, from deep within going, he did it. <sighs> wow. Okay. Now, do you have your orange? Hold up your orange. Class. <laughs> okay. You don't have to keep it up there, but if you want to, that's fine. We didn't get to the word well-pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well-pleased. The word for pleased here in Greek, it's a compound word, and you can all learn it together today. It's eudokio. You want to say that out loud together? Of course you do. That was a fun one. One, two, three. Eudokio. All right. The word you means good. Dokio means to think. To think good, to think good thoughts, to find profound happiness, joy, pleasure, and delight. That's the word, Eudokio. With you, I'm well pleased. That's how the Father thought about Jesus. When I think about you, I feel good. Feel good. You see, it's one thing for God to love you because ontologically he has to. In the Trinity, God is love. It's another thing for God to be abundantly clear about him liking you. 
And so, one of the best ways, I think, to think about God liking you is to peel an orange. One of my favorite books that I read a long time ago, and I was recently reminded of it and had to get it off the shelf and go back through it, is by an old priest. His name's Robert Capon. He was a chef, and he, um, he wrote for the Times, New York. It was great. And the book was called The Supper of the Lamb. And I forget the, substitute, uh, the subtitle is something like a culinary commentary on the life of God or something. It's like, oh my gosh, all right. But this is what he says about an orange. And so maybe if you want to just take one moment and just peel just a little bit of the orange rind off, if you want, if you, if you don't want to, that's fine too. But listen to what he says. He says, peel an orange. And he says, do it lovingly in quarters like little boats or in staggered exfoliations like a flat map of the round world or in one long spiral as my grandfather used to do. Nothing is more likely to become garbage than an orange rind. But for as long as anyone looks at it in delight, it stands a million triumphant miles from the trash heap. That, you know, is why the whole world exists at all. It remains outside the cosmic garbage can of nothingness, not because it's such a solemn necessity that no, nobody can get rid of it, but because it is the orange peel hung on God's chandelier, the wishbone in his closet. He likes it, and therefore it stays. The whole marvelous collection of stones, skins, feathers, and string exists because at least one lover has never quite taken his eye off of it. Because the Dominus Vivicons, that means like the living Lord, has his delight with the sons of men. As long as he has his eye on it, he takes delight in it. This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. You are the beloved children of God, with whom God is well pleased. Becoming the beloved of God and being liked sincerely by God will change you. Brennan Manning says this. Without sharing personal experience, prophetic preaching is impossible. So I'll tell you something. What's this done for me? I can tell you how the love of God and genuinely beginning to believe that God likes me. How it's changed my life over the last seven, almost eight years. In becoming the beloved and being liked by God, God has consistently rescued me from over-identifying with my work. As someone who is very focused and very driven, even though I might not give off the impression that I'm very focused, I am. <laughs> I can easily fall into the trap of thinking, I am what I make. 
being both loved and liked by God has continued to help me distinguish the truth from the lies that I either learned at home or in a church somewhere or by society or even the lies that I tell myself. Being loved and liked by God has helped me to step into the spaces of grief and face them for what they really are and to honor pain and loss rather than just bury it or ignore it. Where I left utterly to psychotherapy and like a good diet and exercise and sleep, I don't think I would be able to step into the spaces in the way I have without the love of God and being liked by God. It can only get you so far. But being loved by God Being both loved and liked by God has brought a sense of peace and trust as life has taken shape in some ways that I would rather not have. But it's kept me around, you know? Being loved and liked by God helps me engage the world around me. Being loved by God and liked by God continues to offer strength to accept my own weaknesses my own shortcomings, rather than having to constantly overcompensate for them or make excuses. <laughs> Being loved by God and liked by God enables me to hear hard things from my wife. Believe it or not, she has to say things to me from time to time when I need to be corrected. Being loved and liked by God helps me to apologize to my kids when I'm too short overbearing being loved and liked by God helps me to stay present and not chase every single opportunity as though it were an obligation do you have some opportunities in front of you opportunities and does not equal obligation you know being loved and liked by God has helped me not compete with or be intimidated by my peers In fact, being loved and liked by God helps me celebrate when my friends win and not secretly kind of resent them and wish like, well, I wish I had that too, you know? In the South, you would say like, gosh, that preacher went from like preaching to meddling at this point. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you're meddling with my business, dude. Being both loved and liked by God has helped me interpret and experience my friends differently. Because they too, even in the more challenging moments, are still a means of God's grace to me. And it makes me wonder what could happen to you too if you stopped warming yourself by the fire of God's love and stepped into the fire and became consumed. What if you thought of yourself as the one that Jesus authentically likes? What would you become if you knew you were God's orange? <laughs> this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Etch that into the soul of your life. Take some time today or tomorrow, or sometime this week, even in traffic, just stop and remind yourself and say it. I'm loved and liked by God. I am his beloved son. I am his beloved daughter. 
and he has chosen of all the places to take delight, he chose me. He's not playing with your soul. He purchased you through Calvary. He resurrected on Easter Sunday. He has sent his Holy Spirit, and Jesus one day will return for the ones he loves and likes and will make us all entirely, totally, finally, completely new. That's the hope of the world.